great. We're okay. proud to have former nine-year veteran of the major leagues and current analyst for the L.A. Dodgers with us. He spent the uh, last five years as part of the Dodger broadcast team, where he provides analysis on television broadcast outside of the NL West. He's earned national yeah. notoriety as a staple of Fox Sports coverage of Major League Baseball from 96 to 2006, where he earned an Emmy Award and two additional nominations during his tenure. As well as having some controversy at times, we welcome Steve yeah. Psycho Lyons. And the key um, here is this now gets Mark one step closer to his dream of interviewing Vince Scully. <laughs> no. yeah, you're one step closer. Last week we had a, we had somebody on who wrote a biography of Vince Scully. Not now just, we have somebody, who's, just somebody who's on when Vince Scully is not. Smith. So, all right, Steve, I also hate, as an interviewer, to ask questions that you probably get every single interview but I, you know, obviously, you have Steve Lyons, so you have to ask the two questions right. You know, I gotta get them out of the way. So let's start with the nickname. Do you remember who first gave you the nickname Psycho, and why did it stick so long? Uh, the the, funny, the guy who first gave it to me was Mark Sullivan, who was a backup catcher that I played with, whose father actually owned the Red Sox uh, when we were coming up through the minor league system. And and the funny thing about it was he had a way worse temper than I did, and I think that's where it came from in the first place. Um, but then, you know, I continued to be kind of overly aggressive on the field and, you know, wasn't afraid to get dirty and, and made some crazy base running plays and people just, you know, kind of just stuck with me after that. And, um, you know, I think bad news travels fast, you know, so, so that, that was it for the rest of my career. (laughs) You mentioned a player that likes to get dirty. So let's go, go. let's go to the second question, which I'm sure you must get 30 times a day. The slide, Tiger Stadium, 1990. I'm sure most of our viewers At have seen this. Moment, number one in the book. You know, have seen this countless times, which, incredibly, it's not on YouTube, believe you, it or not. Have you taken it down? <laughs> yeah, shoot, it should be up there. Huh? I think, well, you know, clearly it happened before YouTube, and I don't know if you can go back and find any footage and fire it up there. Maybe you guys could help me with that. Yeah, uh, you know, it'd pro- you'd go viral. You'd be like, uh, you'd be viral. bigger than, uh, what's her name, Susan Boyle in a day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah amazing. You know, it, I think the the longevity of that thing is what amazes me more than anything else. Like you guys mentioned, it happened 19 years ago, and um, someone still asks me about it every day, and <laughs> Uh, I guess it's, it was my claim to fame, and you know I, I think anybody that plays baseball would rather be remembered for something that they did that was pretty spectacular. But this was kind of spectacularly ridiculous, and and uh, had I not done it, uh, a lot of people might not know who the heck I was. So it was actually a good thing at the end of the day, and you know it was pretty innocent when it happened. I just kind of forgot that I was still standing on first base, and uh, they were arguing about the play because I had slid in a first and and beat a tag. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure I was out, but they called me safe. So the pitcher who was covering the bag was pretty mad about it. And so there was a pretty colorful argument. And while they were going on, I just kind of forgot I was still standing out in front of everybody and just pulled my pants down to get the dirt out of my pants. <laughs> it is one of and the funniest clips I've seen. But I, you know, well, it's I, lucky that there were only like 14,000 people in the stands. But it's but, also, but now, now 44,000. Right, exactly. I was there. there right? Exactly. That's one of those things, you know, the same thing as Roger Maris's home run, right. where there was like hardly anybody in Yankee State, but everyone was there yeah. all of a sudden. Yeah, you know, and the, and the funny thing about that was obviously I played five years in, in Chicago and five years in Boston, and I have, you know, Boston fans coming up to me all the time saying that, that they were at that game when it happened, and obviously, unless they were at a game in Detroit for some odd, odd reason, you know, they, they weren't there. And I have a, a ton of White Sox fans that say they were there too, thinking that the game was 
was in uh, was in Chicago, right. and I just don't correct them. It's not worth it, you know. If, if they're if they're happy enough to say that they saw it at some point and and uh, are coming up and talking to me about it, then it certainly doesn't bother me. But you're right; it's one of those things where, like you said, you know, fifteen thousand people saw it, but a million people actually <laughs> saw it. All right, with those two questions out of the way, now let's talk a little bit about your career and your new book. You attend Oregon State on, on a partial uh, baseball scholarship. After your, your junior year, your first-round draft pick, 19th overall by the Boston Red Sox in 1981. Do you remember most anything uh, particular about draft day? Uh, yeah, a couple things, actually. Um, you know, I had switched departments. Um, because it turned out that I was living with a kind of a druggie, <laughs> which is some guy answered an ad, and you know he was he was growing pot in the in the uh, closet, and and uh, was taking the he had one of those barbershop mirrors that used to be kind of popular, where there's like a little towel rack and a barbershop mirror, and you could throw it up on your wall, and for some reason it looked cool. He used to take that down off the wall um, to cut cocaine on, and I thought, geez, this is probably not a good place for me to be living. And so I moved out, and, but I didn't really tell anybody. So when I got drafted, uh, they had no way to contact me. I guess the people, um, from the draft board and, and anybody who, you know, would try to contact me had the wrong address. So I didn't actually find out, uh, until later in the day, my girlfriend actually called me and, and told me that it was on the news where she was, and I kind of got mad at her because I, I, I asked nobody to call me because I was waiting for a call. And when, when she was on the line, I was, I was kind of disappointed. I was like, you know, I asked, please, you know, don't call me because I'm, I'm hoping to get a call. And I don't want the line to be busy. You know, this was before uh, call waiting and all that stuff. And uh, so she said, no, 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 it's on the news. You got drafted by the Red Sox in the first round. And I was like, you don't, don't be messing with me here on this. This is not funny. And she said, turn the news on. And so sure enough, that was so that was pretty memorable. The the fact that no one could find me on draft day. How long did it take for the Red Sox to actually find you? Uh, you, you know, I think at that point I found them. You know, uh, <laughs> my dad started making some calls, and uh, first we called the. Uh, grew up in Oregon. I went to Oregon State. We called the Oregonian newspaper just to make sure that it wasn't some kind of misprint or that there was a different Steve Lyons out there playing somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then I can't remember the exact process, but I believe we tracked them down. See, it's interesting how different it well, is. That's what they, I, that's, I think the, the image we had a couple of weeks right. ago when we were watching the first round. AJ first and round. I actually uh, had a kid that we coached um, on some of our teams that neighbor got drafted, and he's a neighbor of ours that just yeah. got drafted in the first round by the Diamondbacks. Now, I looked at your first year's draft round, and yeah. there were some pretty good players, such as Joe Carter, Kevin McReynolds, Ron yeah. Darling, and yourself in the first round. There were also a number of players that never played in this first round that yeah. never played a single game in the majors. Today, a first-rounder is a huge investment, and right. if that guy does not make it to the pros, whoever you know, was the, the guy who, who the outed him yeah. is out of a job. As a number one draft pick, did you feel added pressure to, to make it to the bigs? No, not at all, because it was totally different back then. It was, you know, the, if you got drafted in the first round, the team was basically expected to sign you. And, um, I, mean, I mean, I was the 19th player picked in the country, and, and uh, if you look at the 19th player picked in the country today, he probably is going to sign a deal for upwards of close to $2 million, $1.6, $1.8, $1.9 million to sign. I made $2.1 million in my whole career, which spanned about 13 years. I got $55,000 to sign. And so there, there, is, there wasn't the investment that there is right now. And then plus, you know, the agents and everything put so much pressure on the organization now to get this guy to the big leagues. You know, not only are you going to give me a $4 million signing bonus, we're going to get a major league contract, and he's going to be in the big leagues after his second year, regardless of what he does. 
And so they, they put deals like that together. With me, it was like, hey, we're going to give you a little bit of money here because you were our first-round pick. Now we're going to pay you $600 a month in A-ball, and, and you bust your own tail and see if you make it. And that's kind of the way it was back then. They wanted, they were going to give me every opportunity to make it, but it wasn't like it was today where they basically held, you know, they hold your hand and they're going to put you in the big leagues whether you deserve to be there or not. Did you find a big difference from the college competition to two weeks later, the, the pro competition? Uh, yeah, there's there a clear difference. I mean, I went to A-ball and started playing and, um, you know, I, I I actually can't remember my numbers in A-ball. All I know is that I, I figured if I could play till the year 2000, which I obviously didn't, um, I'd be a 300 hitter because in my, I think of my freshman year in college, I hit 243, the next year I hit 246, the next year I hit 248. In my first year in pro ball, I hit like 246, the next year 248, next year 250, I think 268 in AAA. And I just figured, hey, if I can just keep plugging along, I'll be, a, I'll be a 300 hitter by the year 2000. And, uh, you know, I, I never hit for a high average, but, you know, I was always one of those guys in the minor leagues I think that you had to worry about because uh, I was always, um, you know, top two or three on my team in all the other offensive categories that meant anything. But I was always about a 250 hitter. So, um, you know, the competition clearly was, was certainly nothing that I just walked right through and thought, oh, this is easy. Uh, I had to struggle uh, basically every year of my career. Uh, it took you four years to make to the pros. You, you make your major league debut at the age of 24, and it, it, you know everyone talks about your major league debut, your first at bat. But your first two games, you actually were a pinch runner. Once for Rich Gedman, and then I think uh, another time, um, I don't even remember. I, I think for the, the catcher, um, you finally get your first at bat against Juan Augusto of the White Sox in Comiskey Park. Um, do you remember what it was like waiting for your first at bat, knowing you know? You were in the dugout not knowing when it was going to come and then finally getting your at-bat and walking up to the plate? Yeah, I mean, everybody remembers their first at-bat, you know, and, and this was a, a day in, in Chicago, and we had a rain delay for about, you know, an hour or so, and Tony Armas was playing center field, and he had kind of tight legs, and so after the rain delay, they decided not to put him back in the game, and they put me in to play center field, and... Juan Augusto was pitching, and I hit left hand, and I thought, great, my first at bat, I'm going to have to face some lefty who's going to just dominate me. And I can't remember what happened, what the count was, but I, I drilled the ball down the right field line that went foul by about two inches. It would have been easy double. And, you know, I would have been able to say that for the, for the rest of my life, that my first at bat I doubled, but I ended up working a walk. So my, better than a strikeout, but my first at bat was a walk. And, you know, the funny thing about my career, especially my rookie year, when I made the team out of spring training, I was on the team the entire time. But think about it. I mean, uh, Memorial Day has just passed us by. Memorial Day is two two months into the season, and that was the day I actually made my first start, which is, you know, ridiculous. I mean, there's nobody on any team in the big leagues at all ever anymore that has to wait two months to make their very first start. And that's how long it took me to make a start in the big leagues. And I hit two home runs on that day. Right. And you're part of an 86 Red Sox team, and before that season ends, you know, a team that's headed for, for you know, postseason, yes. you're, well, you know, aside from saying, you know, you walked in your first major league at bat, this is something you can tell the grandkids, that you were traded for Tom Seaver. It's, uh, it's a pretty good trivia question. I don't think it's right up there with, with Charlie Williams for Willie Mays, but it's a pretty good one for sure. What was your reaction to being traded um, from a team that drafted you and, you know, that you were part of well, you know, I wasn't getting a whole lot of playing time, and at that point, you know, Seaver was making a lot of noises that he wanted to get back to the East Coast, and I wanted to uh, 
I wanted to have a chance maybe to play a little bit more. And, and there was a lot of talk in spring training that the White Sox wanted to trade for me. And uh, at that point, the Red Sox didn't want to let me go. And they, have, they actually offered Tony Armas instead, and they, they didn't want him. And so when, the, when this trade went down, um, Seaver wanted to get to the East Coast, and the Red Sox and the Yankees were kind of battling it out, and people were saying whoever gets Seaver will win the division. And so they pulled the trigger on that deal. And I got to the White Sox all, basically on the same day that they fired Tony La Russa. And so when Jim Fregosi took over as the manager, the new manager of the team, uh, he virtually had no idea who I was. And so it was really a bad situation. When I got there, he didn't know who I was, and, and uh, he was taking over a team uh, brand new and, and uh, I wasn't even in the organization here. I'm this guy that shows up. He doesn't know anything about. And so that didn't really work out all that well for me. You also pitched for two different major league teams, and you've also played every position on the field at one time or another in your, your major league career. What What's pitching like? You know, if you're not a pitcher, yeah. going out to that mound, you know, what's going through your head? Well, I think we all pitched at some point uh, in our careers. If you're a major league player, I'm sure in high school or grade school, everyone pitched, and I did too, but I got really good at hitting bats, so I, I stopped doing that. But, um, you know, I took it seriously. When I got on the mound, uh, they were both, you know, blowout games. They ended up throwing like five innings, uh, including a couple of exhibition games that were uh, like the Crosstown Classic, the Red Sox and the White Sox used to play every year um, before interleague play. Um, and in fact, in that game in 1990, I played all nine positions in one game. So that was kind of a, a, a fun thing to do as well. But you know, I, I struck a bunch of guys out. I struck out Chuck Knobloch when he'd only he struck out 42 times that year. Um, I struck out a guy named uh, well, shoot, I can't remember his first name. His last name was Howard. Um, I got uh, Rafael Palmero, and he was leading the National League in hitting. So you know, I had a pretty good little sinker and a good slider. And so I wasn't just going to throw it up there and let guys hit it. I, I figured. At the end of the day, when we were getting beat fourteen to two, my job was still to try to get guys out. Uh, you mentioned Rafael Palmero, so I, I, I'm going to throw this Here's one those, in there because, the it, well, well, interestingly enough, you, you kind of trash yeah. Jose Canseco in, in the right. book a little bit, and, and I, I get where you're coming from. Um, one of the reasons I agree, Canseco wrote that book is because it was you know, monetarily you know, driven, yeah. and he never blew the whistle while he was doing it. Uh, but in the same respect, you know, you're a teammate early on of Roger Clemens. You're also a teammate of a rookie, Sammy Sosa. You're now a broadcaster of a team that has Manny Ramirez on it. Um, what are your thoughts on P, uh, performance-enhancing drugs, what they've done to the game, and how do you feel as a guy who played his whole career, I'm assuming clean, you know, yeah. is competing against guys that were cheating? Um, you know, I think it must be my fault. Everywhere I go, there's guys that you mentioned that, uh, that are doing it. I'm, I'm the link to everybody. That, that um, was your first roommate, that guy in the apartment. Maybe he's the guy right. Yeah, quiet. exactly. It all stems back. He was the, he was the chemist. Um, I, I think I take a different view than a lot of people, especially the different guys in, in my position at this point. I, I really don't worry that much about it. I, I think that there were enough guys doing it that I don't think that we can um, decipher who was and who wasn't. And I think that 10 years from now, we're going to have to look back at the steroid era and pretty much let everybody into the Hall of Fame uh, because we're going to have to judge the era for what it was. And you can't, you know, how can you point fingers? At, you know, like I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm sort of a proof guy. Like I love McGuire and, and or Barry Bond. Neither one of them uh, is ever. And you're going to keep both of these guys out of the Hall of Fame on speculation. And then you're going to speculate about a guy like Blue Holtz has never 
tested, but it has ridiculous numbers. And a guy like Big Poppy who's going through the floor right now and everyone's saying, ooh, maybe he got off him. You know, that's a bad speculation to have about people. And, and so I'm one of those guys that you need proof uh, before you nail a guy to a wall. So I just think it's going to be one of those areas that we're just going to have to throw our hands up and say, guess what, it happened and we move on. So you do it with an asterisk saying, you know, here's the, here's the steroid era Hall of Famers, or do you just put them in uh, yeah, with everybody yeah. else? I think yeah, you just put them in. I don't think you can do an asterisk because it, it just it doesn't make sense. I mean, you know, no one no one put asterisks in the book when they raised the mound and, and Bob Gibson dominated and then nobody put anything in the in the record books when they lowered the mound and everyone started hitting more home runs. They didn't say anything about the dead ball era. They didn't say anything about when there was only what, six or eight teams and there were no black players. How about when black players came into baseball and into prominence, why didn't we change the record books then, you know? So I mean time marches on and every era of athlete is always gonna look for an edge to get ahead. And I think, unfortunately, for all athletes right now, is that we've now hit the chemical age, and we've hit an era where someone slides up to a guy who's hitting, you know, six home runs and hitting 280, and the guy says, "Hey, I can get you to hit 20 home runs and maybe hit 300, and and you'll never be looking for a job again." And then you have to worry about the moral fortitude of that guy to either say yes or no to that. It's interesting. It, it, it's something that can de- be debated back and forth. And I, for years. I know that Peter Goldenbach, right. who's a very good friend of the show, yeah. he doesn't. He says, you know what? He does not care because he thinks that you know Bonds well, is just a, yeah. a piece of art. Watching, you know, no one hits a ball yeah. the way, the way he, he does. No one is as good an athlete as he is. And however he got there, he still misses seeing right. him play. That, that's right. And, we, and you know, I, I think the, I think that's the general public too. I think the only reason why the general public cares is because the media for the last ten or twelve years has shoved it down their throat saying that they have to care and that it's so bad and it's ridiculous. I almost, uh, you know, I, I kind of relate it to old, you know, the, 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 like almost like a modern-day gladiator. You know, in the gladiator times, you know, when those two guys got into the ring and they fought, you knew one guy wasn't coming out of there alive. But all you wanted to do was see the show. You know, and, and it's like, like who, who am I to judge what these guys do in order to get up there and play the game that most of us would give our right arm to play anyway? It's like, you know, you're not, you weren't taking the millions of ground balls with them when they were 16 years old, and you weren't in the weight room, you know, throwing the weights up, whether they were getting some help or not. You know, you're out messing around, drinking, or, you know, having fun with your girlfriends and stuff. Well, these guys are, you know, doing everything possible to get to the point where they are, and it's like, you know, the only real person they're hurting is themselves, and I'm not even sure that, that that's even been proven. So I don't really think people care about it. I think they just want to see the show. I think the, the problem, and, this, and we've talked so many different shows about this, and my personal take on it is that if it just seems that the guys that we mentioned, you know, over and over again, you, you know, the, the Bonds, you know, um, the Clemens, it just seems that, I guess part of their makeup and what makes them such great athletes is that they're, you know, they have an attitude. And I think the Bonds arrogance and the Clemens arrogance runs people, rubs people the wrong way. So they kind of take away their achievements by saying, oh, well, he cheated because he's a jerk. You know, it's okay. Whereas, you know, if you read the, the, um, the book about Clemens, um, by Jeff Perlman, it, it, you know, Everyone in baseball knows that Mike Piazza took steroids, according to this book. Right. Okay, but yet Mike Piazza, no one really, no, no one's crucifying Mike Piazza. No one's taking anything because he was was a a good good guy. guy. You know, it's it's such a double standard, but yet I I think that comes into play big time. There's no question that it does, and that also that also lends itself to 
you know, the people that get that opinion out there, and that's the writers, and that's why I look at, like, some of the Hall of Fame writers right now that are coming out right now saying, I will never vote for anybody who's ever been speculated on steroids. You know, guys like Mark McGuire, like I said. I mean, get off your high horse. These are the same guys that, you know, spend most of their time killing the spread up in the press box and cheating on their wives, and, the, and yet they're standing there <laughs> acting like, you know, they're the holier-than-thou voice of God when it comes to a Hall of Fame vote and, and steroid use or speculated steroid use. You know, like I said, I mean, you guys um, obviously have mentioned the, the controversy that's been around my career at times. It's like, you know what, I would really like people to stop and, and actually find out the stuff that I got in trouble for and see if it's even true, you know, it's like, because I can explain anything, but no one ever wants to stop and, and find out what the actual story is, they just want to read the headlines and say, oh, he must have said something bad, they fired him for it, you know, it's that kind of well, stuff, well, you know, I've step. been well, on the well, bad side of that coin. Well, you know what, and it's funny you should say it, because, and this is my take on it, all right, and, and these are, uh, I'm not 100% sure if these are accurate quotes, and even if they are, AJ and I had a, a little argument before the show. But, I'm saying that based if this is what you said and I kind of remember some of them and I'm not sure if I'm going to quote them accurately so I want you to correct me if I'm wrong but what you said is nothing different than you see 24/7 on television on any sitcom so if you're there and you're there for the the purpose of entertainment now AJ and I both happen to be Jewish AJ kind of like he, he bristled at the Sean Green thing and I said you know what it's, Sean Green, to me, but, but well, wait, wait, let me finish, I'll let me the finish, and then you can go. The offensive part of it. But it's it's satirical. Okay, it, okay. I mean, bottom line is, is supposedly, you know, when you, you called Sean Green out for, you know, sitting at a, a game on Yom Kippur and saying he's not even a practicing Jew, he didn't marry a Jewish girl, and what from, I understand, he never had a bar mitzvah, which is unfortunate because he didn't get the money. That, to me, is a joke. Yeah, and it, and it even went deeper than that, just to kind of to to hit home the punchline. But it, but the, the point is with that, which I was trying to be funny, obviously, and and that was if if that's the one you're gonna if that's no, the one no, you're gonna stick your guns to, which no, is fine. No, no, no. no, no. I, I know you guys are, are being cool with me, but I'll admit to that. I'll admit to ignorance on that, and I probably should not have said that. Anything else? Anything that they've piled on me now, the Lupinella thing, the, the blind guy in New York, I can explain that away. And, and if anyone, and also on the Sean Green game, if anyone ever watched the entire game, they could never in a million years come away thinking that I didn't like Jewish people. I had said earlier in that game that I loved Sean Green, and if you, a player as a guy, and I said if you have brother, you would wish that he was Sean, and then. It, what him missing the game. I wasn't even bashing him for missing the game because bottom line, I had talked about it with my producer the night before, and I said, what are we going to say about this? I said, because I know we're not supposed to do race, religion, color, any of that kind of stuff. I said, but this is forefront. He's sitting on a game because of his heritage and because of his religion. It has to come up. It will be talked about. And I said, I don't want to bash him here because I like him. I said, because but, but what he really did is he was on the fence because he played Friday night and he didn't play Saturday. I'm so not... all the Jewish people were saying you didn't stand up for your religion, and, and all his teammates were saying, wait a minute, what are you doing? You're sitting out games, so you're not supporting us. So I didn't, I didn't want to do that to Sean Green. I didn't want to say, look, he's on the fence. He never did make a decision. So I stayed away from that. And believe it or not, the joke that I used was not something that I came up with on my own. I had heard it from someone else who was Jewish. I ran it past three Jewish guys on our crew only to find out if it was funny. They all laughed. Not one of them said to me, Steve, you probably shouldn't go there because 
you know, you, you're stepping over a line that you don't know about and that probably isn't funny to some people. And so had they had done that, I would have kept my mouth shut. But so that was my ignorance that got me in trouble there. But if you want to go to all my other incidents, I can explain those away too. <laughs> yeah, without, without going to one other and, and chapter and verse, broader question. Well, you talked about, you raised the Sean Green thing. I, I find that the line about the money offensive, but that's different. That's a joke. But the question is, is there something that's okay, and you mentioned this, it's okay to talk with a bunch of guys and not okay to say in front of a national television audience? Is, well, you you're right. a different I mean, level of sensitivity. That, that's a basic yeah. question. It covers everything, basically. You know, it's one thing to say. Well, I think what you, guys have, what you guys have talked about before and the way you set this all up, you're right. But I, as a broadcaster, have to understand the difference. I mean, it's not all entertainment. It's not all satire. It's not all being funny because... You know, you, you, us three, if we were all great fun, friends, we could all sit around and talk in a way that you could never talk on air. But I have to know, and I always believe that I did know the difference between, you know, us talking in a locker room and me broadcasting to millions of people. Or the thing, the, the same instance with, with Lou Pinella. Everyone's like, well, Lou didn't have a problem with what you said, right? And I'm like, no, he didn't. But that's not the point. The point is, if I say something on air that someone else has a problem with, then I can't say that. You know, so, so I and, do and, know that difference. I'm not an idiot that's 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 you know doesn't understand the difference between what you can and can't say and what the parameters are. But there. those lines blur every day because Keith Hernandez well, took heat for something. I mean, says, was it smart? I mean, he goes it was in San, no San Diego, I believe yeah. it was military night or something, and there was a yeah. woman in the the the, the, the Padres dugout um, who was, happened to be the trainer. Okay, she happened to be the Padre, and he just felt that there was no room for a woman to be in, yeah. and he went off. The next day, bashed in the press, okay? I mean, Steve's line about Sal Fasano, it's a funny line. He knows a guy who knows a guy. So, so that, that, let, that, let, but, let me, let me ask Steve. But we are so PC correct that when does it get to a point where you, you can only say, strike one? So here's, here's, here's a different question, Steve. How much of that do you think that you were on national television at that point because you had the, the pension of saying the outrageous thing? How much was that encouraged, and do you feel that sort of the rug was cut out from under you? When the, contro- uh, the reaction, the controversy. Absolutely, that was one of the reasons I was hired. There's no question about it. And um, you know, uh, the, the president of Fox Sports used to say all the time, "Don't take the Steve out of Steve." You know, let him do what he does. And I guess the thing that hurt the worst for me was that I worked there for 11 years, and that the Sean Green was uh, was an incident that my uh, direct boss, or actually not my direct boss, the the head boss at, at Fox Sports. I, I I choose not to name his name. I'm sure people that are savvy enough know who it is, um, was very upset about and wanted me fired at that point. And so I knew that I was looking over my shoulder after that. Um, and so, uh, but at the same time, you know, that was the first incident in nine years that happened. And I was the guy that they sent right to the front line, be funny, Steve, but be controversial, be who you are. And then the one thing with Sean Green, which was out of ignorance, as I said before, and I didn't even understand that I had done anything wrong, they wanted me fired. And I'm like, where's the loyalty at this point? You know, why are you shoving me out the back door and, and basically going to label me a racist on my way out um, after the nine years and three Emmys that I won uh, while working for you, and you know everything was fine while things were good, and then one mistake, and I and I had almost zero support. Well, all right, I, I'm glad we we got that out bit. because uh, because we'll it's important. Here, yeah. So, uh, but now let's get into your book. book. All right, the the Psycho 100, which, which uh, recaps some of I'm baseball's right wackiest now. moments. It, it's uh, broken up into some categories. Some of my favorites: what a play, fights. We had a few. It's all about the the fans. 
in each chapters I found something that I had totally forgot about, um, which was interesting because it sparks a memory of like uh, certain of games right. and certain you know moments in the game. What was the genesis of the project for you? Uh, you know, someone came to me and just said, look, why don't you, we're thinking about doing something like this, and we figure you're the guy that should do it because you've probably been involved in, in most of the crazy plays, and if not, you can figure out what they are and talk to people about them, and, and uh, you know, you're the guy that should write it, you know, you, you know, with the nickname and all that stuff. You know, it was, it was a much bigger task than I thought at the first. Uh, you know, the, the plays are, are much harder to whittle down. Certainly, if you guys have perused the book, you can say there, there's probably a, a bunch of plays in there that you may have put in that I didn't. Um, and as you said, there's a few plays in there that you either forgot about or, or didn't know anything about at all. And really, what I just tried to dig a little bit deeper into some of them and give you the, you know, the, the background behind what, what actually happened. Maybe we've seen the video a hundred times but maybe we didn't know exactly how it was set up and, and what happened there. So, you know, talk to a bunch of people, um, and you guys being from New York, you know, what I found is that two things really struck me strange. Uh, most of the plays, uh, I mean, a huge percentage of the plays happened in games that really counted. Playoff games, World Series games, you know, not some Saturday afternoon game in May that didn't matter for anybody. There's tons of those plays that happened in big, big games. And then the other thing is Willie Randolph was probably at most of them. I mean, <laughs> being a player and a coach and a manager in New York, I mean, he's seen so many of those plays that happened. It's amazing. And then, you know, when I asked him about what he thought the craziest play was, he came up with the Chambliss home run in, I believe, 77, where he had to basically tackle people. And he, he, we kind of used that as a firsthand account as, as to what was going through his mind when that happened. And so... I thought that the, that he would have thought there was something uh, a different play that he thought was crazier, but that was the one that that really stood out in his mind because he was he was just twenty years old at the time. Kind of explains also of last night's uh, in the park. Uh, well, not in the park, the, the park triple grand was... slam. You know, Willie's the bench coach of the Brewers, right. so he saw that was, last was, night was, too. Wasn't he hit my, my my favorite weird home run, which was the grand slam single that Robin Ventura hit? Uh, was he, was he, uh, he, yeah, he was part of the coaching staff, was he? No, 2000, was he? No, was he wasn't no, part of the Valentine's, Valentine's, yeah, right. Valentine's. Well, he was on the other side then, because, oh, who were they playing at the time? They were playing the, that was against Brave? the Diamondbacks. The Diamondbacks. That was the Diamondbacks. Oh, the Diamondbacks, yeah, so he wouldn't have been there, because he still would have been at the Yankees, I think. Right, he was still with the Yankees, yeah, he was definitely, because he was yeah. a Tory at that point, exactly. Because that, yeah, yeah, right. He was, yeah. Uh, yeah, but he's been in a, a no, you're right, you you're think right. about that's, it. That's pretty funny. He, he, so, the I mean, Reggie Jackson fight with Billy Martin, he was uh, there, you're right. He's, so, so there are really two, th there, there are, are outrageous moments, because they're, they're unusual and they're feats. Uh, you mentioned the Harvey Haddock's no-hitter. And then there are weird moments like, Steve Lyons dropping his pants. <laughs> so how, how do you decide to do a balance of, you know, of achievements versus odd moments? You know, there, there wasn't really anything. I mean, I, I tried to um, get as many as I could together and then um, tell you the truth, the publishers actually grouped the stories together. I, I wouldn't have had my story be the yeah. first one right off the get-go. I would have buried it somewhere. But yeah. um, they grouped them together based on, um, you know, fights and then crazy things and funny things and yeah. tragic things. And um, so that's the way they kind of put them together in chapters. Uh, but, you know, when I was in Chicago and said, how come you don't have Zambrano in here, you know, punching Barrett or, you know, punching anybody else that he ever punched or, you know, knocking down the water coolers and stuff. I said, well, basically it happens all the time. So it wasn't all that outrageous. And for a guy like him, they, you know, he does it on a weekly basis. And, you know, a couple, I was on a New York radio show and the guy said, how can you eat the, uh, the, 
um, the mayor play in right field against the Orioles lower than one of these other plays. And I'm like, well, because I'm not that much of a Yankee fan. You know, I had to come up with reasons why, you know, to argue with people. <laughs> well, just uh, which are some of your favorites? I have a few, I have three of, of mine, but which are your favorites from the book? Well, clearly, you know, I wrote the book, so my own story is, a, is one of my favorites. I could have ranked it uh, as the most outrageous moment, but I didn't. Um, and the one that I liked the most uh, was something that I just thought would be impossible to have happen. So it is, it is the highest-ranked story in the book. Um, but I won't give anybody, for whoever's listening, I won't give the answer just because, you know, then they won't buy the book. But it's a, uh, an unassisted triple play where the defense never actually touches the ball. And you can scratch your head for hours and try to figure out how that happened and probably won't come up with it. And even the savvy baseball fans, they want to sit around and I go ahead, and then you'll cheat and go to the book to get the answer. We're not going to give it away yet. We're going to make people purchase the book. My, my favorite is the Manny high-fiving the Red Sox fan while turning a double play. That one I didn't know about. Yeah, you know, Manny, too, there's a bunch of stuff that you could that you could talk about with him, you know, going to take a pee in the, in, the, uh, in the left field wall. You know, he's done a bunch of things, and this one was a little bit more recent. I tried to keep some of the stories a little more recent. There are some stories that go back in time, but I figured that any book that I write, my audience would be a little bit younger, um, and so I did eliminate some stories that are great stories down through time and in history, but it was either tougher to do the research on or harder to you know, get people to really relate to it. So uh, that was one of the things that Manny did just a couple seasons ago. And, you know, I mean, even Manny isn't smart enough to figure out why he did it. So it's, uh, to me it was one of those things that I don't think you're ever going to see again. Yeah, the other one was Rick Monday saving the flag. Uh, I remember that one vividly. And, and the Sean Green to Paul LaDuca taking two guys out okay. at home. Yeah. Fairly recently, also as a Met fan, was a big one for me. So those were so my is, favorites. Is, is Milton Bradley uh, going on the table list for arguing with an umpire? There, <laughs> yeah. that's my favorite. Yeah, well, words. you know exactly. I that's mean, my favorite and, words. And, and same thing. That's the same deal. He does it on a weekly basis, so it's not a big deal. <laughs> uh, and, and finally, last week we had, as AJ mentioned, we had Kurt Smith on about his new biography of Vince Scully. Um, and as AJ mentioned, Vince Scully is, you know, to me. The, the best by by leaps and bounds over anyone else. I know that you do have a different broadcast schedule than Vin, but have you gotten to know him at all during your tenure with the Dodgers? And what's he been like for you? I mean, he's always such a gracious guy. I mean, I, you're right. I I never work when he does, but I do also about seventy pre and post game shows, so I see him on a daily basis out of the ballpark. But when I work and actually broadcast the game, he's not even on the trip. So I see him on a limited basis. And, you know, there's no one ever says a bad word about Vince Gilly. He's just a, a great guy, and he's been doing this for so long. And, and you're right, he is, he is a legend at what he does. He is the all-time best. And, you know, when you think about it, when you look at the Dodger franchise, as, as storied as it is, I mean, you, you know, certainly top five in, in franchises, certainly top five in baseball franchises, he is the most popular Dodger. And you can't say that about any other broadcaster. You shouldn't be able to say that about any broadcaster, that the most popular Dodger ever is a guy who never played. It's a, it is amazing. It is absolutely amazing. Uh, Steve, we appreciate, Steve, number you. one, you taking the time out uh, to speak to us. Number two, your open and honest answers to some you know questions that I'm sure you didn't want to get into, but I, I do appreciate you answering them you know openly. And the book is a, a, it's a fun read. It's not one of those where you have to dedicate five, six hours. It's one of those that you can keep handy and do a chapter at a time. In the bathroom. Keep it in the bathroom. Exactly. It is the perfect bathroom reader for sure. 
So uh, th- where everyone can get it, obviously, on Amazon.com, I'm sure, and they're at all the local bookstores. Right. Exactly right. I appreciate the, uh, the pub for it, and uh, it was good talking okay. to you guys. Talk all right, Steve. Thanks. Have a great night. All right, you too. Okay. All right, Steve Psycho Lyons, the author of The Psycho 100.